Hello everyone, welcome back. We're glad to have you with us on our podcast as we discuss the Psalms. This week we're looking at Psalm 137 and it's got some really fun and difficult and curly and twisty and interesting content. I'm sure you'll have some thoughts about this psalm and please don't forget you can email those thoughts to us at the email address sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com and we'd love to hear from you. G'day, I'm Ken. Cam, I'm not sure that I agree it's got much fun in it, but I'm going to enjoy discussing it nonetheless. Hello everyone, this is Luke, and I'm very much looking forward to discussing this psalm as well. I'm Lachlan, and I'm looking forward to this conversation because it's fun to discuss things with friends. Great, well, we're going to start by going through some of the comments that we've received through the week, and then jump into our psalm, but before we do, we'll start with a word of prayer. Dear Father in Heaven, as we read these words... We ask that we would find out more about ourselves, perhaps some of the difficult truth about ourselves, and that we'd find out more about you and the way you would have us live in this world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Today, Wes, who's over in the UK, posed some commentary on both the previous episodes. He commented that there's a strong theme of judgment and that the judgment is, is God interceding on behalf of his people very much. And one of the things he said that was interesting is that the psalmist very much assumes that the judgment, and this fits in very well with the psalm we're discussing this week, God's judgment is going to fall upon his enemies, but not the righteous. And the psalmist obviously counts himself as belonging to the righteous. How does this fit in with our perhaps more nuanced or more informed theology? From I mean, you can't read Paul's writings and defend any sort of attitude that we're the righteous and uh, they're the baddies. Uh, that's true, but Paul does write a Paul does write a lot about these sorts of themes of the you know the things of the spirit versus the things of the flesh. So although he seems to be fairly adamant that there's you know no one righteous in that sense of having earned something, he does still hold this different categories. There there are the people uh, of this world, the powers of this world, and then there are, there are the people who have submitted to the powers of the spirit. Uh, and for Paul, that seems to be some some continuation of this dichotomy. This idea that everything I do is perfect and that I'm completely in the right and that someone else is completely in the wrong could be a delusion. I mean, it is a fairly common delusion. The idea of everyone being in conspiracy against you, they're all out to get you. Maybe the psalmist is mentally ill. <laughs> well, I did talk to a... Um the head of a psychiatric department who once suggested that uh, the psalmist had a lot of the classic symptomatology of a uh, a bipolar disorder. So, perhaps. Well, it's interesting, you know, because uh, it's very well to say this is all very subjective and these attitudes, you know, may not demonstrate, you know, a healthy mind. But if you imagine a different set of scenarios, I was reading about this in, in an essay this week, Imagine a Jew in Auschwitz praying a prayer against the wicked. Imagine a boy neither sporty nor intelligent at a really bad boarding school who's perpetually picked on. Someone in a company who is the victim of a systematic attempt by other employees to paint him in a bad light with the boss to get rid of him. You can actually cook up quite a lot of examples in which someone could very justifiably claim that that in this essential issue they are in the right and that other people are genuinely in the wrong 
it also, if you change your perspective on what prayer is, it can affect how you read these things. If you see prayer as inevitably a request, a petition, uh, then it seems that you might be asking God for the wrong thing. But if you're telling God your natural response to the torture that you're suffering, to the bullying that you're experiencing, then if it's a, a simply a conversation, this is what I'm experiencing and this is, this is my solution to the problem. Does that change the perspective? It's not saying that this is something that you necessarily expect God to do. It's just saying that's what you would like him to. Yes, there's almost a sense in which you could say, I know that, like when you stub your toe, I know that in five minutes I'll be able to think more rationally, but at the moment, this is how I'm feeling. You have to ask the question, you know, are the trials that the person's going through genuine trials? Are they something real? It is possible for a deluded man to imagine the world is set against him. But real conspiracies do happen. Not every conspiracy is, you know, some mental illness. Not, not every feeling of being picked upon is, is some neurosis. When you look at Israel's history, there, there have been many things that really happened that were really serious. It's very easy from our comfortable armchairs to suppose that we would be able to ascribe to a higher and more lofty morality. But, you know, if we were in those situations, would we? Just picking up the idea from Wes's comment, there is a connection here between this attitude in the Psalms or some of the Psalms and the the book of Daniel, where judgment is a thing requested of God. It's not something, you know, the Daniel doesn't sit there afraid of the judgment. He calls out for it. How long? How long do we have to wait for this? Because what I want is for this is for this obvious this obvious situation where the evil people are winning, I want that to come to an end. I want God to call them to account for that. And the writer of Psalms in some of these Psalms we've looked at has has a similar sort of attitude. I'm calling out for God to intervene here. I want God to act. I want God to judge. And the reason that they can, Daniel and the Psalmist, are fairly confident that the judgment of God is going to vindicate them in their faithfulness to God. So there's, there is a connection, perhaps, in the attitudes of Daniel and the psalmist. Yes, there is. And, and the concept of judgment in the Old Testament is very broad. I mean, the judges did some judging in the sense that we, you know, they're hearing cases and deciding between them. But, but they were much more than that. They were much more like, you know, the knights of the round table, touring around the countryside, solving people's battles and problems. And at most times in human history... The problem, if you are poor or unimportant, has not been to have your case heard fairly. It has been to have it heard at all. So judgment, there's this great sense of relief when judgment occurs, that that right will happen. Mm. And the thirst for justice, the thirst for justice pervades the Psalms very strongly. Lewis makes this point in one of his writings on the Psalms. It's all very well to say... Are you on to Lewis again now, you camera? I am. I can't help it. Um... <laughs> Lewis makes this point in one of the Psalms. He says, you know, it's all very well to say, well, anyone who's under trial or suffering will long for justice. He said, but that's just not true. There is another alternative. And he tells a story of a friend who was a schoolmaster who was complaining to Lewis bitterly against the intervention of, of the government in schools and how it was these people were ignorant, incompetent, and these people were lording it over schoolmasters in a dreadful way. And Lewis said, I, I quite enjoyed the conversation of this sort. And it went on merrily until, until the man said that what he was really after, 
given this situation. Perhaps Lewis could help. Perhaps Lewis had some connections. Maybe maybe he could help him get a job in the Ministry of Education. So what this man saw was an injustice, and what he clearly wanted was to be on the side of the oppressors. <laughs> yeah, well, that he wouldn't be the first person with that response to an ob- observation of a power imbalance. I actually want to um, talk a little bit more about this as we get into Psalm 137, because it fits very closely with the psalm that we're discussing this week. So just before we get there, one other comment came in from Clancy in New South Wales, and she pointed out uh, one little observation to do with seas and rivers. Remember, we, we commented on this briefly last week, but it goes back to our first episode. Uh, Clancy points out that the war and destruction came to ancient Israel predominantly from the sea. And in fact, the Philistines are also known as the sea people. So when we read in Hebrew writings of the sea not being there in heaven, that needs to be thought of in conjunction with the fact that that it's, it's saying that military oppression and that kind of interruption to society is not there. That's the connotation that the sea had for the ancient Israelites. Mm. Right, well, let's read through Psalm 137. It's a shorter psalm again. And uh, I think a lot of the themes we've already spoken about um, come out very strongly in this psalm. I'm reading from the NIV. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. I'm going to pick this up in the New Living Translation. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a pagan land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forever forget how to play the harp. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I fail to remember you, if I don't make Jerusalem my greatest joy. And this is from the New Revised Standard Version. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, Tear it down, tear it down, down to its foundations. O daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. Now, Melissa, uh, my wife, pointed out to me that this psalm has been turned into song many times, but they usually leave off that last verse. (laughs) I wonder why. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that, that is very confronting, that last verse, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, I think it would rank up there with, with some of the most well-known, difficult passages in the Bible or difficult sort of images. It's incredibly confronting. I was doing a little bit of, of reading just uh, tangentially. I'm not even quite sure how I got there about the history of Cambodia in recent decades. And I mean, extremely violent and disturbing episodes in in human history and society. But there were episodes there of a a feeling of trying to preserve ammunition. And so finding all sorts of horrific and creative ways to slaughter people that they needed to not be alive anymore. And you, you sort of find this this same sort of imagery, you know, this this kind of smashing people against rocks and stuff just sounds so barbaric and horrific. But, you know, there have certainly been episodes in human history where, where people have stooped that low. It's just not what you expect to see in the pages of the Bible. The question that came to me on that topic was, just because someone is recorded as saying something sincerely in the Bible, must we take it at face value? 
you know, there have been so many people in the Bible who were sincere but wrong or had varying levels of sincerity. We say that, you know, Balaam was not sincere. That's easy. Jonah, Jonah was sincere in his own way. You know, there. what other people can we think of? People who thought they were doing the right thing but weren't. Saul, Saul offering his sacrifice early before Samuel turns up. Does the Bible admit or allow a plain reading without looking at how these passages fit into the whole structure of the Bible? Yes, uh, indeed. Do we take that as being a promise or an accurate description of the uh, uh, state of mind of the one who dashes the baby against the rock? There's a couple of elements on that. Are they seeking revenge or are they seeking justice? O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. Mm. Is what follows a description of what was done to them? I mean, the Babylonians were a ruthless military superpower. Can, can the author of this psalm remember seeing Israelite babies dashed against rocks? It's certainly not, not hard to, to imagine that's possible. And indeed, it's not something that's out of the contemplation of an Israelite in light of Deuteronomy 19.21, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And the, the important thing about that, though, Ken, is that that command is not, is not a command that allows barbaric behaviour. It's a command to restrain barbaric behaviour. If someone pokes out your eye, don't kill them. Just take their eye. My grandparents worked for a while in Papua New Guinea. At a time while they were there, there was some friction between villages over some pigs. Someone had killed someone's pig. So someone from the other village went back and killed three of their pigs. And then someone from the other village laid in wait for them and destroyed their car or something on their, on their way into town, and this thing escalated out of hand. And the command in Deuteronomy says, no, that's not how things should be done. You don't have never-ending feuds. It's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and after that, justice has been delivered, and you just get on with things. Yeah. And, and Jesus takes it to a whole completely different level uh, in Matthew 5.38. Again, a difficult saying of Jesus in light of our first responses, at least, to being wronged. Don't resist an evildoer. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You know, be perfect, therefore, as your father, your heavenly father is perfect. So the, the, the perfection is actually the perfection hard to is, say, really. The perfection is God's indifference. Not indifference in the sense he doesn't care, but indifference in the sense that he does not make a difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. Which, oh, which, so which it's his lack of bias. It's his lack of bias. Yeah, which gospel were you reading that from, Ken? Uh, Matthew 5. Right, it's in another one. Uh, I'm not going to be able to find this. Uh, it's in Luke, I think, except that it's rendered differently. It's the same saying, but it says, Be ye therefore generous, as your Father in heaven is generous. And that does fit, right? Because it's talking about this generosity of spirit, this this selflessness and prioritizing of the other. And it's just interesting that the same passage is rendered without with a slightly different wording. The spirit of Psalm 137 is a long way from generosity, though. This comment ties in with one of Ken's earlier about this being a, a portrait of what actually happens when, when people suffer injustice. Um, Lewis's explanation or Lewis's uh, paradigm that he brought to some of these difficult psalms was that this is a portrait of a man and underneath it should be written 
This is what you turn someone into when you mistreat them. It's a sin to want to dash babies against rocks. But this is not a sin unprovoked. When someone is seduced, in a sexual sense I mean, we don't hold wrongdoing to be only on the side of the person who gave in to temptation. Uh, But whenever we mistreat someone, we are seducing them to the sin of anger, to the sin of resentment. Lewis's comment was about the colonial history of England. He said, who, who knows what prayers have been uttered up to pagan gods against the white man? With all the rape, all the mistreatment, all the exhortation, all the slavery. We, we should read these passages, he said, and tremble. Because we are the people against whom these prayers have been made. Yeah, that, I mean, that's an enormously deep theme. Uh, I see that theme running running really deep through the Bible. You see it in a really interesting little Bible study of a, of a Hebrew word, sa'ak, which is the cry. And it's the cry of the oppressed. It's the cry that the Israelites have. And at the start of the story of Exodus, God speaks to Moses and says, I've, I've heard the cry of my people as they are oppressed by Pharaoh here in Egypt. But it's the same cry uh, that happens way, way back. It's the same cry that Abel's blood cries out. Because Remember in the Cain and Abel story, Cain is being a little bit evasive with his answering, and God says, well, I know what you've done. Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And it's the same Sa'ak. And if you follow that theme through, every time in the Old Testament, when oppressed people cry out the Sa'ak under oppression, God comes to their aid and deals fairly sternly with the oppressing power. And it's interesting to read after the Exodus, uh, God is giving this new nation that he's brought out of Egypt a whole lot of rules, and he fairly clearly says to them, don't become an oppressing power. We spoke in a previous episode about the symbol of the horse and chariot as a military power, and um, Solomon succumbed to the temptation to accumulate that kind of military power in violation to the stated law back in the, the Torah. But there are some other things. And in Exodus, there's some verses which are quite striking, basically saying, if you, if you forget that I am the God who hears the cry of the oppressed, and if you start to oppress your neighbor or the poor or the alien in your land, then basically I'm going to deal with you with the sword like I did to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. It is quite confronting to do that little theme study from our perspective as the relatively wealthy, powerful, white, male West. Um, I mean, let's face it, our our podcast lineup at the moment doesn't represent immense diversity on that front. And, and perhaps we can look to, to amend that a little bit in the future. And we enjoy the comments that come in through the email in order to try and broaden our perspective. But you're right, Cam, there's a trembling that comes with some of these readings as we have to acknowledge Christianity itself, our own cultural heritages, um, our, at times our own family histories. It's not easy to escape the fact that, that we are often connected with the oppressing power more than we would like to be. Yes. And, and what, happens, what happens if we're a boss of any sort? What happens if I'm a teacher in a classroom or a magistrate in a court or a supervisor of a student? Or what if we're in charge in, or a parent? What if we belong to that class of people who can't be answered back, or at least not freely? 
what a terrifying passage this psalm is. We could be capable, perhaps inadvertently, sometimes even by mistake, sometimes we're not trying to slight people or to offend them or to make them look like they've been overlooked for promotion or to appear to be spreading gossip. Even sometimes by accident, we can create deep resentment. We might repent of our sin. But what if this person is not so far on their their journey and they're not yet ready or able or willing to ask for forgiveness for their resentment. How how do things stand between us then? This is a real call to self-questioning and reflection. Mm. I think it's fascinating that we, and it's not, it's not of course surprising because it was, it was on our minds when we chose to, to look at this psalm. It's interesting that we've jumped straight to looking at the ending and we've spent so much of our discussion there I actually have a a comment that's come in that is a little bit relevant to this, but I'd like to hold it just for a bit longer. Maybe we could just explore or chat briefly uh, a bit about the earlier passages in this psalm. Uh, Cam, you mentioned that there's, it's been put to music and often the last bit has been left off. So that suggests that there is some value in the earlier parts of the psalm that we should turn to. When have you wept about the state of your culture? See, Australia, we would be very unique amongst countries in the world. But, you know, against what other countries have been through, Lachlan mentioned Cambodia, any European country has deep roots, deep deep into their culture are stories of hard times they've been through. And as Australians, we don't really have anything to... But it's perhaps true for European Australians, uh, of European heritage. I I suspect it's not true for Indigenous Australians, for the First Peoples of this nation. That's true. Um, And we do not give uh, a lot of time and study to appalling and murderous history of the way that they were treated. And, And down here in Tasmania, worse than anywhere else in the world. Yeah, it's a very good point. I, I just a few weeks ago, had a very interesting experience of a, of a two-hour session under the very interesting label of cultural safety training, which I think is a quite a lot of thought wrapped up into just those three words. This is in the context of university workplace where there's a real deliberate effort on trying to accommodate and encourage diversity of many kinds and freedom of thought and exploration uh, and a lot of those comparatively lofty kind of ideals and it's very rarely actually lived up to but it's nice to see it clearly articulated as a goal but this was very specifically an opportunity for our I work in a physics department so it was our department to spend some time thinking about these issues of indigenous cultural heritage indigenous cultural participation and their perspective on the world and on Australia. And it's fascinating to go through this experience as a university physics department because we don't have a very strong indigenous Australian representation. That's true and that's similar in lots of places. But we do have an incredibly rich multicultural representation. Like a lot of research departments at universities, there are people from all over. We have people from the US, from the UK. There's a guy from Israel. His, his entire perspective on Indigenous Australian history was remarkably and noticeably different. So it was really interesting. It was really interesting to see this. I think you're right, Ken. The... 
that element of Australian history probably should cause us at least a little bit of weeping, uh, especially when you have the sobering reflection that an Indigenous Australian male of my age has a, a statistical life expectancy that's shorter than mine, not just by years, but probably by decades. Well, I mean, if, if one were to sit, and I, I can't uh, because of my genetic and cultural heritage, uh, but if one were to see this through Indigenous eyes, uh, perhaps one would see. Uh, well, we've seen the destruction of our uh, of our world, and here we are being asked to toe the line with our oppressors. We're being asked to do what they want us to do, uh, and they're not prepared to listen to us. Yeah, which reinforces the point we were discussing earlier. These bitter psalms, the vindictive psalms, hold immense value. If you stop and you think that perhaps it was intended that we would see ourselves in these psalms not as the victim but as the oppressor. Mm. And I certainly see that in a very challenging way when I look at uh, myself, uh, my ignorance in verses 1 to 3 as a privileged you know, white male, and I can't help that. Uh, that's where life has placed me. I can see myself there as the one asking to be entertained. It is really interesting, isn't it, when you're thinking along these lines. It's interesting the captives are weeping as they think of Jerusalem or of Zion, which is something that they have lost. And there is a completely oblivious element. The captives say, oh, give us a... They, they insist on a joyful song. They are trying in a very clumsy way to perhaps acknowledge, oh, yeah, actually, that's um, that's a little bit rough for you guys. But hey, let's cheer up. Let's sing one of those good songs about that about that city of yours. Or maybe it's out of even just a sense of, of curiosity uh, without any real attempt to engage with the person. You know, t tell us one of those interesting you know, stories of the dream time. Um, my sister has often mentioned to me she's into art. She's mentioned to me that the great curse of being an Aboriginal artist in Australia is that to succeed, you are expected to do Aboriginal art with dots and, you know, all the rest of it. And there, there is a sense in which that is not in good taste, in the same sentiment of what we're talking about in this psalm. You know, sure, tell us about your culture and how, you know, how nuanced and rich it was. That's, you know, we're very interested now. You know, it took us a bit too long to get here, but whoops. I'm sure, Luke, you have many perspectives on some cultures telling other cultures how to run their country. Uh, you obviously have just been through some fairly, you know, serious political unrest in Hong Kong. Yes, it's, it's certainly a, a parallel, and it's probably a, a consistent theme across all of human conquest, is that the, the victors or the conquerors, or the, the, more, the more powerful of the people in the relationship, expect to be liked. They expect to be thanked. And I think it's, it's as Lachlan said, a lack of perspective, fundamentally a, a lack of empathy for what the other party is, is experiencing. And a tendency that I think is a very natural and understandable tendency that we all have to some extent, to only see the positives 
of a situation when it's in your interest to do so. I say it's one of the things I really like about the Psalms in general is that they are not uh, overwhelmingly positive. Mm. It's interesting too, and this is something I, I really wanted to get to before our discussion closes, is that there is a turnaround in the power imbalance. This is obviously written about the Babylon captivity and the book of Esther, which is one of the most mysterious books in the Bible, is a story of the Jews gaining the upper hand in the power imbalance. And it's a fascinating story because the book is completely secular in the sense that God is not mentioned and no one even prays in the book of Esther. So for some of us who know the story perhaps slightly more instinctively from various children's story renditions of it, there was lots of praying. But you're saying in the Bible text itself, there's not. Not only is there no no praying, but Esther's um, behaviour is not fully in keeping with the children's story, nor is the king's. It's not really anybody's in that story whose <laughs> behaviour. <laughs> no, well, no one's really. And this is one of the interesting points. Lots of people have tried to find where God is in the book of Esther. And you can find it in lots of different ways. There's certainly lots of surprising coincidences that happen. And elsewhere in the Bible, when something remarkable happens, the author is not reluctant at all to say that God was behind it. But in Esther, there's there's no mention. The trouble with the book is that when the Jews do gain the power in, uh, the, the upper hand in the power imbalance in Esther chapter 9, this is again a part of the Bible where we tend to leave off the ending. Uh, the Jews triumph, and they ask for permission to defend themselves. And in the process of defending themselves, they, they kill down tens, tens and tens of thousands of people. After one day, they haven't defended themselves enough. And Esther goes to the king and says, please, please, can we defend ourselves for another day? So the king says yes. And so they defend themselves, defend in inverted commas, for another day, and they kill another tens of thousands of people. It seems that they got their wish in terms of Psalm 137. Mm. And one possible explanation for the absence of God's name in the book of Esther is that in the original writing it was there and that this was written up in the style of the great deliverances you know, found in the first five books of the Bible, but that it was subsequently edited out. And indeed there is a uh, Greek version of the book of Esther uh, which contains a, a number of, well, 107 additional verses that's included in the uh, Deuterocanonical books and uh, includes uh, references to Esther praying and uh, Mordecai praying and to uh, the fact that uh, uh, Mordecai at the end uh, says, uh, these things come from God and they fulfil the dream that I had. Yeah, and that, that's absent That's absent from our book. And I find that comforting. One might almost suppose that God had intervened on behalf of his people, but was just very disappointed with what they did with their freedom. What, what You know, God's d not comfortable. You know, it's a bit like, you know, if someone rang you up and asked if they could, if you could endorse something for them. And if the person who's asked you for a a reference is not someone you really want to endorse. You just feel a bit uncomfortable about it. Almost as if God's saying, well, actually, I don't want to put my name on this one. It, that is not a sense. In which case, why did he include it in the book, yeah. <laughs> in the Bible? <laughs> that, 
that is the question on which there's no consensus. Well, it's interesting. Your your take that you just presented on the Book of Esther, where it's almost as if at the end, what they did with it wasn't entirely, you know, God's ultimate ideal, because because God's ultimate ideal is not such vengeful, violent retribution. Uh, that fits with deeper themes throughout the Bible of restoration as opposed to retribution. And Jesus comes and teaches a thing different from the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth that we mentioned at the start of this conversation. Jesus teaches, you know, turn the other cheek, a much more self-sacrificial life of generosity. A comment that came in to our email inbox, but actually came from, from my wife, Clancy, on this Psalm 137, she heard we were going to discuss it and had a new idea. And I'll try it out and you can see what you think of it. So the idea goes like this. You read through it. They are sitting beside the rivers of Babylon and they are weeping. And their captors come and say, hey, sing us a song. Sing us one of the joyful songs. But in verse 4, they say, but how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a pagan land? They're almost saying, actually, we can't really sing the Lord's song. And so what they then do is sing a song to appease the demands of their captors. But they sort of do a twist. They do a kind of seditious song of resistance because they don't sing one of the Lord's songs. They don't sing one of the joyful hymns of Jerusalem, as they've been asked. They sing a song that starts as if it is one, verses 5 and 6, how, but if I forget you, O Jerusalem, you know, may my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I fail to remember you, if I don't make Jerusalem my greatest joy. So there it is, the form and structure of an opening song of the joyful hymns of Jerusalem. But then the song takes a turn and it becomes a, a song, a pointed song to make the captors realize the naivety, the cruelty, the misguided you know, whatever it is that is motivating them to request this song of Jerusalem, the song that gets sung is a is a song for that moment of relevance and significance for that context, singing it to the captors, and may not actually be the Lord's song, as was admitted in verse four of this psalm. That's a really uh, that's a really interesting take on it, isn't it? Uh, in order to sing the song of Zion, the environment and the frame of mind has to be right. And you can't do it uh, when you're oppressed. And if you're the oppressor, you are taking that, you are taking worship away from the oppressed. And it's not the Lord's song because the Lord doesn't pray that those who pay you back what you have done for us will be happy. Given the context of this psalm, you do have to wonder what happens after verse 9, right? The context is there are captives who are being demanded to sing a song. So then they sing this song, which starts in the right direction and goes into very much different direction. What's on their minds, the captors, at the end of verse 9? You know, they've asked for this song and the song has confronted them very vividly with a view of the world that's probably, you know, as Luke was saying, they probably were expecting to be thanked. Um, as bizarre as that sounds, but Luke's right, I think, when you look at history, that would be a very a very typical response to be imagining. 
where do they go from there? Do they react in anger? Uh, I mean, is this is this actually a a defiant song to sing? I wonder whether or not, at the very least, the uh, Babylonian bobbies said, all right, then, time to move along, go home, or whether there might have been the need for some tear gas. When you're in a position of power and you're insulted, the temptation is to simply double down on the use of the power. Yeah, it's very dangerous when you're in a position where you can't be answered back. It's a terribly dangerous position. Is that a a way in which this psalm speaks of faith to God and faithfulness in a relationship to God? In that, what I mean is the at face value violent imagery at the end of this psalm. We struggle with reconciling that with a faithful life of obedience to God, but the gesture of standing up in defiance to an evil power that is oppressing the the vulnerable people of the world and is ignoring the sa'ak cry of the oppressed, standing up to that power and defying it may actually be a tremendous act of faithfulness to the merciful and loving and um, rescuing nature of God. I think... Well, there's a couple of things that this psalm brings to brings to mind reading it. One is that, from our point of view, the time in human history when we were born, and the country that we've grown up and lived in, is an incredibly prosperous and peaceful environment by almost any standard across all of human history. Most of human history has been by our perception, incredibly violent and miserable and full of suffering. And it may be that the things that we struggle with in this particular psalm, the imagery that we have trouble with, most people in human history, including many Christians at different points in the church's history, wouldn't necessarily have as much of a problem with. The other one is is that... It may simply be, not exclusively, but but it may just be that this psalm is a recording of misery. Somebody wrote it as a reminder to people of these circumstances, these events, as some recording of, of a history and, and a real low point in the history of a nation. Sort of like a diary. Yeah, exactly. It's it's you know its purpose as as the writer wrote it. I'm not saying there might not be other reasons for it um, to be in the Bible as it is now, but the writer's intent was was simply to tell people how miserable they were and how unjust their situation was. The emotional message comes out very strong with the abrupt end, and I've been looking at it, like thinking of your comments, the fact that this, the end of this psalm might be intended for the original audience of Babylonian people uh, as a bit of a surprise, as a bit of a subversive act. The first part is quite structured. I think that you could identify two stanzas that are chiastic. With a chiasm, you have a beginning matches end. So if you look at verse 1, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept, and in verse 4 it talks about being in a foreign land. And if you look at the first half of verse 3, our captors asked us for songs, they said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. So there's a sort of a repetition there. It's sort of like an A, B, B, A structure. And then if you look at verse 5 and 6, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, 
and verse 6 ends by talking about Jerusalem. And the middle part is again, may my hand forget its skill, may my tongue forget its skill. So again, we have sort of an ABBA structure. And then the last three verses just go ballistic. They have nothing, there's no none of that structure at all. I, I was going to say, as well, Cam, as you're talking about that, that this does read very much like somebody kind of writing a diary about something terrible and just sort of losing it at the end because it's too horrible. You know, it starts off quite poetically, as you say, and then it just loses all structure and it starts being just saying the most terrible things, curses that it can. I've got a real smile on my face just now thinking of a, back to the musical um, comment that was made earlier about this psalm being put to music. It would be fascinating, wouldn't it, just as an exercise to put this to music, to reflect that kind of reading of it, where it opens with quite beautiful music, with structure, with some call and response type phrasing, but then at the end becomes atonal, becomes perhaps louder. You know, really musically, you could express that kind of picture where it's, it's kind of caught you by surprise. I wonder whether, though, there is a, there is a connection between the beginning and the end because, you see, and there's some contrasts and some parallels. So... Uh, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. Well, what did they remember Zion uh, for? They remembered Zion because it was their little ones uh, who were dashed against the rocks. And what cause that would be uh, for weeping because it's Babylon is being paid back for what they did. Uh, and that is exactly that. Uh, and that's the weeping. Uh, and that's why you weep when you remember Zion, because of the terrible tragedy and devastation that occurred there. And, and they're asked to sing a song. It's the Babylonians who are asking the, the oppressed to sing the song. And, and yet at the end there, it's the, uh, uh, the song that's being sung is for the oppression or the repayment of the Babylonians for what they've done. So there is the start and the finish do have close connection. So what do you think we can do with this psalm in terms of informing our actions, our lives, our thoughts, uh, our devotional experience in our modern Australian global context today? Anyone who is well off, anyone who's in a position of authority, anyone who is, has the power of wealth, ought read it and tremble. This is how we treat others is very serious. I think it is a, an insight into the way people who have been treated with terrible injustice feel. And if we should learn anything from it, it is to empathize with them. You know, individually and collectively to empathize with people who are suffering. Because you will not find a motive force for helping others if you cannot empathize with the pain that they are experiencing. There is a, a, a vested interest in ignoring evidence of, of a problem, if it's to your benefit. I think that's a really excellent place, Cam, for us to wrap it up. Well, we're out of time for this week. There's many more things to say, I'm sure, about this psalm. And if you have one of those things, we're very anxious to hear from you. 
the email address is sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. Uh, please send us your thoughts, and we'd love to share them at the start of next week's podcast. It's been great having you here with us.